if you search for the church, you have to search Cornerstone Community Church, no water, because I don't know if you know this or not, but there is a gazillion Cornerstone churches in this country. There's a ton of them, and they all are on podcasts, it seems like. So Cornerstone Community Church, no water, is what you would search to find that. Uh, and follow. Uh, if you follow, you subscribe. Whenever we post a, a new podcast, you'll be able to listen to it there. If you have your Bibles this morning, open to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, or if you have U version, you can follow along on U version. And uh, I'm I'm excited about where we are in the book of Acts because you know Paul has started his missionary travels, and and this morning we're going to see he's back out uh, with phase two of his missionary travels. He's on his second round of trips, and last week in Acts chapter 15, we talked about a very important thing in the life of the church. Now, we see that some people come to Antioch, and they're telling the Gentiles, hey, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised. Well, the problem with this is if you're telling the Gentiles they have to be circumcised, then, you know, Cornelius isn't really a believer. Uh, You know, anything that happened in Acts 13 is just uh, wiped out because these people weren't circumcised. And this causes an issue because it could be a thing of division within the church. And so uh, the apostles and the elders and the leaders at the church in Jerusalem, they get together and they decide, hey, we should not put anything that hinders them from coming to the gospel on them. And so, no, they do not need to be circumcised to be saved. But instead, they write a letter to the church at Antioch and they tell them, hey, you should follow these things, these guidelines. You know, do not drink blood from a strangled animal, Uh, do not eat food sacrificed to an idol, Uh, flee from sexual immoralities. These are things that the Gentiles struggled with as a whole, as a culture. Gentiles struggled with these things, and so you would be wise to avoid these things. They were accountable with them. Do not do these things, but no, you do not have to be circumcised to be saved. And so, That was kind of a big pivotal moment, a big pivotal discussion that was had, and now we're going to continue with Paul's travels. And this morning in Acts chapter 16, we see a lot of neat things take place. And the thing I love about Scripture is the constant reminder that sometimes the basics are, or not sometimes, all the time, remembering the basics are important. Remembering the basics are important. You know, if you're training for anything, you do the basics over and over and over and over again because the basics help you get better, right? You know, when I was playing basketball in junior high and high school, I shot free throws every single day after practice over and over and over again, free throws, because how many games are won and lost at the free throw line? A bunch. Practicing the basics is important. And so, this morning, as we read through this text, we see some things that are basics, some basic questions that we can ask ourselves that sometimes we just, we don't really think about, or we forget to think about, or we uh, don't want to answer sometimes. And so, this morning, as we look at this text, we're going to look at a few questions that we should be thinking about often. And so, our text is going to begin in chapter 16, verse 1. But before we get into verse 1, 
I want to call attention to the header uh, that comes before chapter 16. It may say this in your Bible, it may not, but it says it in mine, so I want to call attention to it. It says, Timothy joins Paul and Silas. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a second, what about Barnabas? It's been Paul and Barnabas, right? The, you know, through the first mission trip, through all the things that Paul has gone through since his conversion, Barnabas has been there with him. So why does it say Paul and Silas and not Barnabas? Well, the reason for this comes at the end of chapter 15. We didn't cover this last week, but uh, I want to mention it. We see that Paul tells Barnabas, hey, why don't we go back and visit the places that we had just been, and we'll check on them and see how they're doing. And Barnabas agrees to this, and, and Barnabas says, okay, well, let's bring John Mark with us. Paul doesn't like this. If you recall, in chapter 13, John Mark up and leaves uh, on their, at the beginning of their travels, and Paul never forgets this. He never forgets what has taken place, and he says, no, he's not going to take them. And, and this causes a sharp disagreement between the two, and we see Barnabas and Paul separate. We see that Barnabas takes Mark, and they sell for Cyprus, but Paul chooses Silas, who we see in 15 is a prophet who was one of the ones uh, picked by the Jerusalem church to go with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch to proclaim what the letter had uh, what they had written down in this letter about things that they needed to avoid. And so Paul takes Silas, and they're going to continue on their travels. And so that leads us to where we are in 16, verse 1. And it says this, Paul came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. And so we see here at the beginning of 16, they go back to Lystra, and we meet a man named Timothy. And Timothy is a very important person in the New Testament. We see Paul write two letters to Timothy to help strengthen the church at Ephesus, where Timothy was involved, where he was ministering. And Timothy uh, is a man who is of both Jewish and Greek descent. His mother is a Jew, a Jewish believer, and his father was of Greek descent. We see that his mother was a believer. We see that Timothy was a believer. Timothy likely became a believer last time Paul was in Lystra in chapter 14. And his mother was a believer. And it's likely, if you recall in 2 Timothy, where we see, you know, you came to faith because of your mother and your grandmother. Both of those ladies played a very important part in the role of Timothy coming to, or becoming a believer. And so we see that uh, Timothy is a believer. We see that he is well spoken about the people at Lystra and Iconia. They spoke well of Timothy. Matter of fact, they spoke so well of him, and Paul thought so highly of Timothy that he wanted to take him with him on his travels. And when we read through uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, we see that Paul had a lot of respect for Timothy, a lot of respect for Timothy. He loved Timothy. He considered Timothy a son. 
Timothy played a very important part in the life of Paul. And we see he wants to take him with him. And so what he decides to do is he decides to circumcise him because of the Jews who lived in that area because they knew his father was a Greek. So he was, as I said earlier, he was both Jewish and Greek descent. And so knowing that they were going to take him with him on these travels and that they would be speaking to Jews along with Gentiles, it made sense to have this man circumcised. Now, some people like to say, well, what about Titus? When you read in Galatians, we see that uh, Paul uh, keeps Titus from being circumcised. Well, that was an issue of he should, be the, or he should do this to be saved. This is a different thing. He's going to be talking to Jewish people and, you know, as a sign of respect. And because this man had a Jewish lineage, it would make sense for him to circumcise this man. And if you're thinking about from chapter 15, why is he circumcising this man who is half Gentile, half Greek? Well, Paul never says don't get circumcised. Paul never says the Jews shouldn't be circumcised. He never says nobody should be circumcised. Instead, it shouldn't be an issue of salvation. And that is the point. And so they circumcise this man and he goes along with them. And we see that they travel from town to town. They deliver the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders. And people are glad. And the church is strengthened in their faith. And the numbers grew daily. I like that Paul does this. If you recall, this letter is not really written for every church. The letter that we see in 15 was written as a response to what was happening or what was happening in Antioch, and yet he's taking this letter around on this travel, and he's telling people what the apostles and the elders and the teachers said in this letter. It's smart. It doesn't matter if it was for Antioch. It really applied to all the Gentiles across the board, and so he was smart in saying, hey, listen to what these people in Jerusalem have encouraged you to do. The, the benefit of this letter was that while it might have been written for the church in Antioch, it applied for all the Gentiles across the board. And we see again, Luke does this thing throughout the book of Acts. He gives this little progress report, and he says the churches are strengthened and the numbers continue to grow daily. More and more people are coming to know Jesus because what God is doing, what the Holy Spirit is leading them, uh, they're preaching and teaching, and people are growing in their faith, and they're growing daily in numbers. It's an amazing thing that we can keep reading these progress reports throughout the book of Acts, how things are constantly People are constantly coming to know Jesus, and the church is constantly growing every day, and people are growing in faith. And so, looking at these first five verses brings me to the first question I want us to answer this morning, and it's this, what is your reputation? Because you see, Timothy had a good reputation. People spoke well of him. The believers spoke well of him. Paul knew his reputation. He had a solid reputation. It was so solid that he wanted to take him with him. Reputation is important. So what is your reputation? When people say so-and-so, insert your name here, what's your reputation? What do people think when they hear your name? When they see you out and about, what's your reputation? You see, a reputation is an important thing. A matter of fact, when Paul is talking to Timothy and, uh, and First Timothy and talking to him about the qualifications for leadership, listen to what Paul tells Timothy. He says, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders 
so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. One of the important things for a leader is they must have a good reputation because a bad reputation makes it very difficult to share with somebody. If people know you for negative things, it's going to be very hard to witness to them. And so for a good leader, a good leader must have a good reputation. So what is your reputation? What do people think about when they hear your name, when they see you out and about? What is your reputation? Because you know as well as I do, I grew up in a small town, and if you grew up here in a small town or any small town, you know that everybody knows everybody, right? Like, no matter what you do, everybody knows what is happening, and everybody knows who you are. You went to school with the same people. You've grown up with the same people. Everybody knows who you are. And so what is your reputation. When people see you, do they see Christ? When people hear you, do they hear Christ? When people hear you talk, when they hear you speak, when they see you live your life, what is your reputation with your coworkers, with your classmates, with your friends and your family? What is your reputation? You see, we should be living in this world, but not of this world. We should look different. We should look holy. We should look set apart. People should know what we believe and what we speak and what we say and how we serve and how we lift up others. We should have a reputation that points to Jesus. Philippians 1:27 tells us this, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Matthew 5, 14 through 16 tells us, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. When people see you, when they hear about you, do they know you believe in Jesus? Do they know who you follow? Do they know what it is you believe in? Are we living our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? What is your reputation? The text continues here in verse 6, and it says that Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want to stop right here for just a second because there's a lot of interesting things that take place in just this little section. First of all, we see that the course here is being guided in a couple of different ways. We first see that some of the places they want to go, they are being kept out of by the Holy Spirit, and they're not allowed to go into these provinces uh, and preach the word, and especially in the province of Asia. 
It doesn't tell us why these doors were closed. Perhaps it was because Peter would be the one who would take the gospel into the area of Asia. We see in 1 Peter chapter 1 that Peter would have a ministry in Asia, and so maybe this was reserved for Peter. But it doesn't tell us exactly why the doors were closed and why they were directed in opposite or to different routes. Also, we see here that they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So again, they're trying to go here, but the Spirit of Christ doesn't allow them to do this. Instead, during the night, Paul has a vision of a man from Macedonia encouraging him, come to Macedonia and help us. And so the next morning they get up and they head to Macedonia, concluding that God had called them to preach the gospel to them. So we see the Spirit, we see the Spirit of Jesus, and we see God, all three, in this passage, directing where they're going to go. They're shutting doors and they're opening doors. I think there's a good lesson for us there that sometimes the doors we want to go through are going to be shut to us. Sometimes the doors we don't want to be are open to us are the doors that God's going to open to, for us. God works in mysterious ways, doesn't he? Sometimes the places we want to go isn't where God wants us. The place we don't want to go is where God is going to send us. And we'll talk about that more in a second. Notice here, too, it says, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia. Notice the word we right there. Up until this point, we've seen Paul and his companions, Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. They, they're going. Now, here, we see Luke say, we are going. So, this tells us one thing, that Luke is now a member of this voyage with Paul and his companions. It moves from they to we. Why is this important? Well, because now everything that's about to happen is first-person testimony. It's not just, I've heard this person say this, I've got report from people about this. No, what is about to take place, Luke can say, I was there. I saw this with my own eyes. I knew what happened. I can tell you all about this. And so they get up and they go and they head to Macedonia. In verse 11, it says, From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight from, or for Samothrace. And the next day we went out to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. And so they head out from Macedonia, and they come to the place known as Philippi. Philippi was a uh, city that was named after Philip II, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was a leading city in Macedonia, but it wasn't a big city. It was kind of a small uh, Roman city. And we see here that on a time where they're going to pray... They are going out by the river outside of the city gate where they are looking for a place to pray. 
this doesn't, if you think about the rest of where Paul has gone and what he usually does, this seems kind of different because usually he goes to the synagogue, right? He looks for the synagogue on, like, any time he can, he goes to the synagogue. Here, he doesn't go to the synagogue. Well, why is that? Well, it's possible because of how small Philippi was, maybe they just didn't have a synagogue, and it's also possible that maybe they just didn't have enough Jews in Philippi to have a synagogue. In order to have synagogue, you had to have 10 Jewish mills. It was possible that they couldn't even get 10 Jewish mills together to have synagogue. And so maybe it's just likely that they were meeting out in open air or possibly in a different building. doesn't tell us. It just says they go and they look for a place to pray, and they come upon some women who are meeting and praying together, and they start to Uh, share the gospel with them. And one of the people there was a woman named Lydia. She was a dealer in purple cloth. Purple cloth was a very expensive fabric, which would mean that she was probably uh, pretty wealthy because this expensive material, which is purple cloth, was often given to royalty. It was bought by royalty. It was used by royalty. Therefore, she probably made a decent income. Matter of fact, it's likely she earned a decent income because she has a house big enough, we see, where people can come and stay with her. So she was making good money doing what she was doing, but we see she was also a God worshiper. She was a worshiper of God, and it kind of reminds me of Cornelius a little bit. If you recall, Cornelius was a worshiper of God before he was a believer, and we see a similar situation here. She was a God worshiper, yet she was not yet a believer, and we see that the Lord opens her heart to respond to Paul's message. God opens her heart so that she could hear and respond to the message that Paul is preaching. This is a good reminder to us that when people come to know Jesus, it's because God has opened their heart to receive that message, to hear that message. Without God's intervening and opening our hearts to hear that message, to hear his word, it's not something that you know people do for us. It's something that God does in us, opens our hearts to hear that message, to receive that message. Now, this doesn't mean that Lydia was passive in her salvation. Uh, She heard the word, she listened, she paid attention, and because of this, she becomes a believer. And we see that her and her household were baptized. Again, the book of Acts, it doesn't beat around the bush when it comes to baptism. It is the next step after belief. The next step is baptism. But I think this is pretty amazing because God shuts doors, God opens doors. Paul hears this, he sees this, he has this vision, I'm going to go here, wait, I can't, God has shut that door, I'm going to go here instead, oh wait, I can't, God has shut this door, but God has opened the door for me to go to these places, and he opens the door for him to go to Macedonia, and what does he do? He goes to Macedonia, he goes to Philippi, and what happens when he gets into Philippi? He shares the gospel with a group of women, and what happens when he shares the gospel with a group of women? One of them believes, and our whole household believes and is baptized. And so here's the question from this section that I want us to ask ourselves. Are we following God's lead? Are we following God's lead in our lives? 
Are we following it when God puts this stirring in our heart, this desire in our heart to go and do something for him? Are we following his leading? And I think the thing is, is so many times, you know, we we feel this stirring in our heart, we feel this desire in our heart, like God is pushing something there to for me to go and do something. He's calling me, he's he's putting it in me to go and, and do this task that he has set for me. But we try to come up with all the different reasons why we can't right? Like, oh, what if, they, what if they don't respond well to what I have to say? What if they don't want to listen to what I have to say? What if they make fun of me? What if I don't fit in with them anymore because of this? What happens? Or, or you know, I'm just comfortable where I'm at, right? Like, you know, maybe, maybe God's going to call me over here, and I don't really want to go over there. I want to stay where I'm at. I'm comfortable here in my bubble. Or maybe it's just a God, I don't feel equipped to do what you've called me to do. I don't feel equipped to do this. I, I, I don't know the first thing about any of this. I, I don't, why don't you find somebody else? We push down this thing that God has placed in us to go and do this task. And, and one of my favorite things I hear people say is, I just haven't heard God say, hey, do this. Well, I can tell you honestly this morning, I have never heard God say, hey, Bobby, Go do this thing. Never heard, never heard him say that. But I have felt in my heart this desire to preach and to teach and to tell people the good news. Are we following God's lead? 1 Corinthians 7, 17 tells us this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him into which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. 1 Peter 4, 10 through 11, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Are we following God's lead in our life? Maybe this morning God has been stirring it up in your heart to do something. And it doesn't always mean he's going to call you across the country or to another country in general. It doesn't always mean that. Maybe what God is calling you to do is something right here in this community. Maybe God is calling you to take this job that you've been iffy about. Maybe God is calling you to go to your classmates or your coworkers. Maybe God is putting it in your heart to help on Wednesday nights here with D-Zone or Aftershock or, or maybe it's, man, just in my own family, God's calling me to speak up and, and say to somebody, hey, you need to hear about Jesus. What is God putting in your heart and are you following God's leading? Are you following what God has called you to do? Because look what happens here. Paul goes where he can, where the doors are open. He doesn't go where the doors are shut, but he follows where God leads him, wherever that may be. And whenever he goes, we see people come to Jesus. Are you following God's lead? The second, or the last part of the text comes in verse 16 and following. It tells us, once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which he predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling, and she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God, who are telling you the way to be saved. 
She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. So pause here for just a second because uh, an interesting story here takes place. We see that there is a slave girl who uh, has this spirit. She's... uh, you know, been taken over by the Spirit who has the ability uh, to tell the future. And because of this, uh, she is a big money maker for her owners because people are interested in knowing the future. Matter of fact, the Roman world was so influenced by magic and divination, people would consult those who were able to discern the future. This included political and military leaders so they would pay for these services. And, you know, this girl is, is going around and she starts following Paul and his companions and is yelling, hey, these people are from the Lord and they're here to tell us uh, how we can be saved, what we must do to be saved. And this keeps happening day after day after day. And finally, which I just love this, Paul gets so annoyed with her that he drives out the demon. Now, I want to believe that part of Paul was, I'm going to do this because it's the right thing to do, but we see Luke tell us he was so annoyed with her that he was just like, all right, I can't handle this anymore, and drives the demon out of this woman. Uh, Have you ever been so annoyed with somebody you just want, don't answer that, don't answer that. Um. But this is a big deal. This is a very big deal to these, uh, to the owners of this slave girl because that's income. That's income for them. And so, Luke tells us, when our owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. I love how Luke words this because it's almost ironic, like out goes the demon, out goes their money. Like that kind of is what happens here. Out goes the demon, out goes their chances for income. And so they are livid about this, and they drag Paul and and Silas into the marketplace to face the authorities, and they bring out the magistrates, and they say, these men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. They're not even talking about what has just taken place with the driving out of the demon. No, their uh, argument, their charges are these people are telling us to accept things that is unlawful for us to accept. Romans didn't want people coming in saying, hey, you need to follow this or you need to do this. And so for Paul and them coming in and preaching the gospel and telling these Roman citizens, hey, you should believe in this, they didn't want anything to do with that. They didn't want anything to do with that. They didn't want to have any part in that. And so they bring them in and say, these are the things that they are doing. And we see in verse 22, it says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 
When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. So because of what has taken place, uh, all these Romans, they rally together, they get everybody in an uproar, and so they have these men flogged, and then they have them thrown in jail. Now, uh, throughout history, there have been a lot of archaeological things that have taken, a lot of excavations that have taken place in Philippi, and a while back they found what they think in Philippi is what the jail would have looked like in Philippi. And a matter of fact, there's, on the next picture, there's a little nameplate on this jail cell that says Prison St. Paul. It's likely, they believe, that this would have been the cell or something similar uh, where Paul would have been in prison while he was in Philippi. And so they are in jail, they're, they're being watched, they're, they're shackled, and they are in big trouble. Uh, verse 25 tells us, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a mill before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. What an amazing story this is. So they're sitting in jail. They're shackled up. There's no escape for them. And what are they, they're, what are they doing? They're holding their heads down. They're sad. They're disappointed. You know, they're just downcast. They're gloomy. No, that's not what it says. It tells us that they were praying and singing hymns to God. They can't go anywhere, so might as well praise God in the midst of where they're at, right? And so they're praying to God, they're singing praises to God, and in the midst of this thing, we see such a great earthquake that the foundation of the prison was shaken, the prison doors all flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. Now, some people try to say, well, when it says their chains came loose, it just meant that it fell off of the wall, the chains that they were shackled to. It wasn't like they were, their, their chains were open. No, it doesn't tell us that. I believe their chains fell off. They were no longer in their chains. This amazing thing, they're praising God in the midst of, this is another important lesson we could take, right? Like no matter what our situation, we can praise God in the midst of it, right? Like in the midst of what is happening in our personal lives, what's happening in our homes, what's happening at our schools, what's happening in our jobs, you may be frustrated, you may be feeling like, man, God, what are you doing? Why am I going through these struggles, these difficulties? We can find reasons to praise God in the midst of these storms, and we can worship God in the midst of these storms. I don't know about you, but for me, it feels like when I'm at my lowest, when I'm down and I just feel like, God, what is going on? There's something about worshiping Him that brings me up. 
There's something about worshiping God when I am feeling so downcast that when, man, God, I, I just don't know what to do. I just turn on the radio and I just sing to, to God. And, and I just feel better. It's amazing how that works. But they're praising God and this amazing thing happens. But now we see about the jailer. This is a bad situation for this jailer. He wakes up and he sees the prison door open and his first thought is, oh man, they've escaped, they've run out, they're gone, I'm going to kill myself. The reason for this is he failed at his job. And, and Romans did not mess around when it came to people failing at their jobs. If their person escaped in your watch, you would be put to death. You would face the shame of standing before your authorities and having to explain what took place. And so his, his best option in his mind is, I'm just going to kill myself. But we see before he can do this, Paul speaks up and says, hey, don't harm yourself. We are all here. This is an amazing thing. Paul isn't a, a bad guy, and Paul's the kind of guy who's going to listen to his authority, even though he had an opportunity here to escape, right? Like, he could have said, I'm gone, I'm out, I'm going to get out of here while I can, I'm going to flee. He, you know, if you follow me, he could have been like, hey, all right, I'm going to head out, like, I'm going to get out of here. But he doesn't do that. He stays in this jail cell. And because of this, this jailer comes to him and, and he falls before Paul and Silas trembling and he asks, what do I have to do to be saved? Such an amazing thing has taken place and the fact that Paul doesn't leave is even more amazing in the life of this jailer. And he knows after what he's been hearing probably before he fell asleep, he's probably heard people praying, he probably heard people worshiping, he knew who these people were and, and just Paul staying was a big deal in this man's life because, man, I was in deep trouble but they didn't leave this is a God thing. And he comes to them, what do I have to do to be saved? And they replied to him, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. I love that Paul mentions this here too in verse 32. He says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So when this jailer comes before Paul and Silas and asks, what do I have to do to be saved? It was a miracle in itself, the fact that he didn't have to commit suicide, but the fact that they also shared the word with him. We've talked about it all through the book of Acts. Miracles validate scripture. Scripture validates miracles. They go hand in hand. And so he doesn't just see this miracle and believe. No, he sees this miracle, asks what I must do to be saved, and then they teach him God's word. They proclaim God's word to him. What do I have to do? Believe in the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And so... In verse 33, it tells us that at the hour of night, the jailer took them and he, he washed their wounds, such a kind thing for him to do. Remember, they had just been flogged a while before and they were probably in pain, so he washes their wound. And immediately after that, he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. They were praising God, worshiping God in jail, in chains, and now they're eating in this jailer's house after his family has heard the gospel. Amazing what God does. And it says that after this, his household was baptized. They get baptized immediately after this. And it says that this jailer was filled with joy because he had come to believe in his God 
or believe in God, he and his whole household. Imagine if Paul would have got up and left, but he didn't do that, and look what happened. This man and his whole family comes to know who Jesus is. In verse 35, it tells us, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with an order, release these men, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. So we see here that after this amazing thing takes place where they, uh, this jailer and his family come to believe in Jesus and are baptized, uh, the next day the magistrates send for uh, Paul and Silas and tell them, hey, you guys are free to go. You've learned your lesson. You can go. But this does not sit well with Paul. And the reason why this does not sit well with Paul is he tells us that we were beaten without a trial. And here's why this is important. We're Roman citizens. Paul doesn't mention this to them at the beginning. No, he tells them now, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Silas is a Roman citizen. You should have put us through trial before you ever even laid a finger on us. Paul was such a wise guy, and this serves him well when you go through the rest of the book of Acts because we see over and over and over again he will stand trial before these Roman authorities, and he will stand on the fact that he is also a Roman citizen. He is of Jewish descent and of Roman citizenship. He understands both sides and he uses this. And right now he's saying this because in all honesty, he could have got them into big trouble because they never held a trial. They never, or they were flogged without getting to defend themselves. Uh, a matter of fact, in his commentary on Acts, uh, Gartner points out that from the time of the early second century B.C., Roman citizens had been exempted from humiliating forms of punishment. Rome frequently investigated officials accused of departing from accepted customs of law enforcement. So this would have been a big deal. They would have faced a lot of problems if Paul wanted to make this public and say, guess what, everybody, we're Roman citizens and you didn't put us through trial. I'm going to raise a, a fuss about this. Instead, he doesn't do this. And it says that they decide to... Uh, leave the prison. They ask him, leave the city. And so Paul and Silas, they come out of the prison. They go to Lydia's house. They met with the brothers and sisters there and encouraged them. And then it says, then they left. Notice here, the we ends and it goes back to they. This tells us that it's likely that Luke decides to stay in Philippi and continue to uh, help encourage the church and build the church up and, and spend some time there. Matter of fact, we will see it flip again to we in chapter 20 when Paul is back in Philippi. And so Luke is spending his time for the time being in Philippi. And so we have this amazing story that takes place here. And here's the last question that I want us to think about this morning. Do we do the right thing regardless of consequence? Do we do the right thing 
regardless of consequence. Now, Paul drives out this demon because he's annoyed, but like I said, I want to believe that Paul also was doing it because he felt like it was the right thing to do. And, but even if we don't talk about that and we just talk about what happens in the jail, he could have fled. He could have fled and he could have, you know, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to leave this person to do whatever he need, feel he needs to do. But that's not what he does. He stays. He respects his authority enough to say, hey, I've been placed here for a reason. I'm going to stay right where I'm at. He does the right thing regardless of whatever the consequence was. The jailer could have locked him back up and he could have faced trial and he could have been executed. We don't know what could have happened to Paul because, you know, many things could have happened. But we see him stay and do the right thing regardless of consequence. And so, do we do the right thing regardless of consequence? 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14 tell us this, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened. Galatians 6, 9 through 10 says, Let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. And Psalm 34, 14 reminds us very plainly, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Do you do the right thing in your life regardless of consequence? Because here is the sad truth that following Jesus and and proclaiming Jesus and teaching people the gospel can come with bad consequence. You can lose people out of your life for following Jesus, for teaching Jesus, for proclaiming Jesus. You can lose family members who don't want to believe in the same thing you believe. You can lose friends who think, oh man, you're just trying to tell me what I can or can't do. I don't want to have anything to do with you. You can lose relationships by following Jesus and teaching people about Jesus. There's consequences sometimes for being a follower, for doing the right thing. Look all over the world in other countries. We are blessed to live where we're at because in other countries, doing the right things means that people die. Doing the right thing means that people spend time in jail. Doing the right thing means people lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes doing the right thing can lead to consequences in some bizarre cases, I've read stories of people who have lost their jobs for doing the right thing. I had to take several accounting classes when I was at Wesleyan, and I'm sure Terry could probably tell you uh, similar things where people have asked, hey, do the right th- or don't do the right thing, do the thing that helps us and will keep you on, and they do the right thing and they lose their job. It happens, sadly. Sometimes doing the right thing means consequence. Students, sometimes doing the right thing in school means consequences. If you do the right thing, other people may not like you. They may not care about you as much because, hey, you're, you ratted me out or you told somebody this and guess what happened to me? But do the right thing regardless of consequence. And so what is our reputation? What is our reputation? What do people Think about you when they hear your name, when they see you in public. 
Are you following God's lead wherever it is he may be calling you in whatever way it may be that he is calling you? And do you do the right thing regardless of consequence? You know what I notice about all of these stories in Acts chapter 16? Each story ends with salvation. Each story ends with salvation. People are hearing the word and they're growing daily in number. Lydia hears the gospel and her and her household are saved. This jailer hears about the gospel and he and his household are saved. All of these things end in salvation. And so why are these questions important, these basic questions? Because if you have a reputation of being like Christ in everything you say and do, if you follow God's lead, if you do the right thing regardless of consequences, consequences, you have the opportunity because of how you live to share the gospel with people who have, made, have never heard it. And people are more than willing to listen to somebody who has a reputation of being somebody who is loving and who cares about people. When you listen to where God leads you, you have an opportunity to be led to somebody in your life who needs to hear the gospel. And if you do the right thing, regardless of consequence, you may lose some friends, you may lose some family, you may lose some coworkers, but you may gain the opportunity to speak to those around you about the good news. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up, and as they do, maybe this morning you're thinking about your reputation, and you're thinking, man, I guarantee if people say my name in this community, they may not like what... I may not like what they have to say. And maybe you're thinking about your reputation this morning and maybe you need to lay that down before God and you need to say, God, I want a reputation where people know me because of what I believe in. People know me by what I say and what I do because it points to this. Maybe you need to lay that down with God and say, God, help me live this kind of life. Maybe this morning, for maybe it's been this morning, maybe it's been weeks, God is stirring your heart, telling you, you have to do something. Maybe it's serving in here, maybe it's serving in your community, maybe it's serving somewhere else. What have you been putting, how have you been putting it off? What excuses have you made for not following that urge in your heart? That calling that God has been placing on you? Maybe you need to lay that down before God this morning. God, help me to go. Help me to listen. Help me to do what it is you've asked me to do. Maybe this morning you're thinking about the decisions you've made and you're thinking, man, do I do the right thing? Do I do the right thing? Am I so afraid of doing the right thing that I'd rather do the wrong thing so I don't have to worry about the consequence? What are the things that you should be doing differently? Maybe you need to lay those before God this morning as well. And so this morning, if you have any questions about, if you've answered those questions and you don't like how you answer them, maybe you need to spend some time laying it down before God. Or maybe this morning you have a decision to make. Maybe you want to follow God's leading in your life. Maybe God has called you to something and you are ready this morning to follow Maybe it's given your life to him. Maybe it's, you know, I need to turn around and get back on track and God has been placing this in my heart and I just need to do it. If that's the case, you can come up here. I'd love to talk with you. Cody would love to talk with you. Any of the elders here would love to talk with you. How do we answer those questions? What's your reputation? Are you following God's lead? 
And do you do the right thing regardless of what it may cost, what the consequences are? If you need to spend time in prayer this morning, you can do so. If you have a decision to make, I pray that you would do so as we stand and we sing.